Uh, please uh, join me and open your pew Bibles to page 955, Ecclesiastes 5, 8, and then on to chapter 6 as well. Page 955. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and righteous and rights denied, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so too those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction and anger. This is what I observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toil. Some labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. I have seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions and honour so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. 
even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place? Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with someone who is stronger. The more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days that they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Um, Please pray with me as we begin. Father, you tell us to guard our steps as we come to meet with you, to come near not first to speak, but to listen. Please do help us to listen today. Would you teach and humble us as we consider your most precious word? We pray this in the name of your son. Amen. Well, how much money is enough money? If you ask people what is one way that you, would like to, that you would like your life to change, a recent survey says about two-thirds of them will say more money. But how much is enough? I mean, it's easy to daydream about winning lotto or inheriting a fortune from some unknown distant relative. And maybe now more than ever with energy prices and petrol prices, with interest rates and rent increases, It's been hard to avoid thinking about money recently. It's been hard not to think what it would be like to have even just a little bit more money. But really, that daydream isn't new for us, not even in the times that we're currently living in. It's a fascination that's been shared by a country that loses $25 billion every year to casinos and horse races. A country that, despite having only... 0.3% of the world's population still somehow manages to have 20% of the world's pokies. A country that leads the world in the highest per capita loss on gambling. Isn't that incredible? Our country is mad on money. Mad on get rich quick. Mad on the desire for more. I think gambling is really just the most crass form of that. We can sanitize our money madness. We can talk of diversified investment portfolios, the benefits of negative gearing, the latest crypto or lithium scheme. Money is the air that we breathe. Materialism is the air that we breathe. And I think Australia is becoming more and more materialistic, which is really no surprise because philosophically we've become more and more materialistic. I mean, in just a week or so, we're going to find out just how many more people are ticking the no religion box on the census form. How many more are willing to be honest in saying that they don't believe there is anything more to life than what we can see and touch. That the whole of everything that we know is just the smallest unit of existence. 
whatever subatomic energy particle you want to point to and say, here it is, here is all we are and there is nothing more, that we are nothing but matter. The most common expression of that thinking, of that materialism, the most, the most common materialism there is, I think, is Mr. and Mrs. three-acre block, a quarter-acre block. <laughs> Three acres, that'd be nice. Mr. looking to buy that beachside weekender. Miss saving up for those European holidays. It's materialism. It's atheism. It's if there is nothing else, then the only thing we can do is get stuff. If all we are is accidental existence, then all we can do is exist. That's actually the air that we breathe, isn't it? It's the television that we watch. It's the books that we read. It's the life our neighbours are living. It's the conversations that are around our Christmas dining tables. And so often it's us as well. I mean, Ecclesiastes chapter, chapters 5 and 6 in that passage that we read, the teacher said that it is, will say in all your daydreaming about money, in all your daydreaming about more money, Don't forget that money doesn't satisfy. Money won't bring you the meaning that you crave. Money and the stuff it buys, money is meaningless. I think it confronts the culture that we live in and says how foolish it is to pursue money and material. Well, Ecclesiastes Um, Ecclesiastes we found is full of hard truths, of of wake-up calls, of exposés on life, on human endeavours and what passes as a meaningful life um, in them. Generations come, generations go. You remember that from chapter 1? The repetitions of the sunrise and the sunset are endless, the world going round and round as people are born, get old and die, their lives no more significant than the rain that falls on the mountains, runs through the rivers to the oceans, goes up by the sun to form clouds that rains back down on the mountains again. Round and round and round, the rain goes round and round and round, people go. It's been like one long episode of Mythbusters, except that the myths being busted are those that humans tell themselves about what might make their lives significant and satisfactory. The teacher doesn't tolerate make-believe. The teacher won't allow anything to appear more solid or more satisfying than it really is. And it's the red and the blue pill, if you get that reference. He says, sure, you can take the blue pill, remain in ignorance, think that your life is good, is significant, has meaning, or you can take the red pill, listen to my reflections, see that your life achieves nothing by itself, that death frustrates every one of your endeavours, that you have, that you leave nothing of lasting significance, that you are utterly powerless to make any mark or difference yourself, utterly powerless to generate any meaning for your lives from any of your endeavours. You can take that pill and wake up and live in reality. Reality where meaning and significance can only come from one place, from God, the giver and the judge. That's been our experience of Ecclesiastes so far. It's been a hard book, hasn't it? Well, today, the teacher sets his sights on money. 
on wealth, on things. And I think it's a hard truth that he has for us. But I think it's the kind of truth that we need. In the culture that we live in, where materialism is the air that we breathe, where money madness is the air we breathe, I think it's the kind of truth we need, the kind of truth that helps us wake up, see what it means to live in this material world, recognising that God gave it to us, how we can live in his world, enjoying his benefits without letting it consume us in our consumerism. Um, I was an intern for a law firm in the city, and as an intern, I didn't have an office. I worked in whatever conference room happened to be available at the time. Um, Sometimes when a barrister was away, I get to use their office. And there was one office that I loved. It was a corner office. It had floor-to-ceiling windows, and I could look down over the city and see, look at all that people watching, you know, look down, see all the people that filled the streets. I think our passage today is a bit like that. The teacher sits up in his study and he peers out through his window at workers wandering here and there. He looks out at them and he see, and all he sees are fools. Everywhere, as far as he can see, as people hurry around busying themselves, all of them, all he can see are fools. And in chapter 6, verse 7, he summarizes his conclusions about them. If you want to have a look there, chapter 6, verse 7. He says, everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. Why do people work? Ultimately, the teacher says it's for their mouths. They work to consume. Now, first, that's to stay alive, bread and butter, but then... They work for that little bit more. Eyes seeing bigger and better things to consume. Our appetites are never satisfied, says the teacher, as he looks at the world. Money, things don't make us content, he says. Man never arrives with them at satisfaction. The problem with chasing wealth is there's no pause button. You always need more. It's why 200 billion pieces of clothing are bought every year. And yet globally, we throw out a garbage truck worth of clothes every second. No matter how much we accumulate in our wardrobe or in our wallets, it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't bring contentment. The result of having it all is being dissatisfied with it all. Um, John Rockefeller, you might know him, he's a, a, a very wealthy man back in his time. At the peak of his wealth, he owned 90% of all oil and gas in the world. He had a net worth of, of 1% of the entire US economy. Next to Rockefeller, Gina Reinhart, Bill Gates would have looked like paupers. And yet when he was asked how much money he wanted to be satisfied. Do you know what he said? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Back in chapter 5, verse 10, the teacher says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. 
and all this is meaningless. This is greed, the belief that my dissatisfaction, that my discontentment can only be met with more and more things. It's the definition of greed. And the teacher says this is why people work. Now, you remember from chapter 4, the teacher has already given us the reason people work. In verse 4 of chapter 4, he says, all of men's work can be put down to envy. You remember that? The desire to keep up with the Joneses, get that TV that everyone else has. Envy, I think, has fueled the tw- that, that very 21st century now career of being an influencer. You know, your whole job being to record that video of you wearing that of you wearing that pair, those pair of sunglasses or wearing that hat, leaning on that car, so that your million followers will go, yes, that's what I need. Well, the reason why that works, why that's a viable career nowadays, is because of human nature, our nature to work out of envy. And to envy now, the teacher adds greed. We work because we think stuff will satisfy us. And you can see how those two things, greed and envy, are related, can't you? I want what they've got because I'm dissatisfied with what I have. I see that they've got something better or more or just different to what I've got, so I'm dissatisfied. My envy fuels my greed and my greed fuels my envy. And so we work for money and for things. Now, most of the rest of the chapters... The, the two chapters, chapter 5 and 6, the teacher sitting up in his study is going to zoom in on particular people and show how this, these principles work. And what we'll, see is the, what we'll see is the outcome, what we'll see is the result uh, of this search for money is that it is meaningless. So he starts in five, chapter 5, verse 8, with the people at the bottom of the pile the poor and the oppressed. Don't be surprised, he says, when you see those who have justice and rights denied. One official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. When I look at the world, this is what I see. Oppression is normal, says the teacher. Now, really, that observation shouldn't surprise us. A world driven by greed and envy doesn't work well for those on the bottom of the pile, does it? No system built on envy and greed is going to be free of oppression. And no government, no matter what they promise, no matter where they fall on the scale from left to right, none of them will fix it. Because governments are only made up of people and people are sinful, driven by envy and the the same envy and greed that drives the rest of us. Uh, Gordon Gecko may have said that greed is good. He might have said that greed has, uh, has marked the upward surge of mankind, he may have advocated for ethical egoism. Um, if you're not sure what that means, it's simply if, if we all look after ourselves, it will all work out well. It's rub- that's rubbish, says the teacher. It doesn't work. And the fruit of it is that some of us will get ahead, some of us will climb higher, but only when some of us are pushed behind. Well, what about the one who gets ahead? The teacher looks at them as well and he says that the only people who worry more about money than the poor are the rich. 
Verse 11 of chapter 5, he says, As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. It's not funny and it's not sunny in a rich man's world, says the teacher. The rich worry about their riches. They see them slipping away as more and more people want a piece of their pie. I think it's worse, uh, the anxiety about riches, uh, our riches is worse nowadays when we have apps on our phones where we can see minute by minute any and all hours of the day whether our money is going up or down. When we can just type interest rates into Google and the first things that pop up are headlines like stock markets plunge again as flurry of interest rates hikes fuels recession fears. Or the second thing that pops up, how you've lost $3,500 in the last 90 days. It's everywhere, that stoking of fears. Will I lose everything that I've worked so hard to get? How can you stop when stopping might mean you lose it all? Some do lose it all. And the teacher looks down from his window at them as well and calls it a grievous evil. Chapter 5, verse 14, when wealth is lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit, a grievous evil, because it shows how meaningless their toil was. In the last 48 hours, you may have heard that Bitcoin has crashed. No, that might be news to you. Hopefully, you don't have have investments in Bitcoin. But Bitcoin has crashed in the last 48 hours and with it, the life savings of hundreds and thousands of people. Misfortune is par for the course for those who pursue wealth. During the global financial crisis, $2 trillion virtually overnight was wiped out of the US economy. 300 million households on average lost 25% of their assets. That's incredible loss. Houses were repossessed. Wealth that took decades to accumulate was gone. Fragility of money, says the teacher, shows how meaningless the pursuit of it is. Nothing is safe. No wonder the rich can't sleep well. And the teacher says, even if we don't face a calamity like that in our lives, all of us will leave this world just as we entered it, naked. Um, There's an Italian proverb, the last coat we'll wear has no pockets. That is, you can't take anything when you die. As everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil. Um, I wonder if you've ever played the board game Game of Life. You played that board game before? Oh, well, you should should look it up when you get home. Um, You travel around the board... Uh, and the, the whole idea is that you just gain money as you go around and whoever has the most money at the end of the game wins. It's tempting to think that life is like that, that success is measured by the stuff that you've got at the end. But it's not. Really, it's, it's much more like most board games. At the end of them, you pack them up and nothing has changed. You keep none of that, none of what you've earned. 
It reminds us of the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 12, the man who had a, a huge harvest but nowhere to store it, so he built bigger and bigger barns and stored it there so that he could have plenty of grain for years to come. What happened to that man? He died that very night. He was a fool, said Jesus. Why consume yourself with storing for the future when you can't know whether what you store will even last or if you will even get to enjoy it? Those that toil and do not get to enjoy their toil, these ones more than anyone, the teacher says, they are to be most pitied. They live the most meaningless lives and they're the last people that the teacher looks at. So in chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, the teacher compares, on the one hand, um, the teacher compares two different people. On the one hand, the, the first one he compares is the one who literally has it all, has wealth, has health, has children. It, it's, it's an extreme example. She's, she's even living for 2,000 years. She has all the wealth, possessions, and honor that she might want. She lacks nothing that her heart desires. You can't think of a more outwardly meaningful life than hers. But on the other hand, the other, person, the other one, the other one that uh, the teacher compares is a stillborn baby. It's an image that strikes our ears as a very callous image, doesn't it? But the teacher's trying to be deliberately provocative. He's trying to shock us. He says that a stillborn baby, according to, who according to all our measures of meaning is going to come up very, very short, according to all our measures of meaning, will we'll come up with nothing. This one that never saw the sun or knew anything, who came and departs in darkness, this one has nothing. This one has no meaning that the world would give, might give them whatsoever. But that baby, their life is more significant. They are better off than the one who lived 2,000 years amassing wealth but failed to enjoy it. It's the one that reaches the top, gets to say that she's made it, but inwardly is miserable. The one who has all the quantity but none of the quality. Um, uh, there's a, uh, Rick Rubin, who's a music producer who worked with a whole lot of uh, celebrities, um, as observed from all his time working with those big names, watching their ups and downs, he said, it seems, it seems like it's hard to get really depressed until your dreams come true. It seems like it's hard to get really depressed until your dreams come true, because what then? If it's hard at the top, where can we find relief? That's why series like The Crown fascinate us so much. I mean, it almost feels genuinely shocking when we watch shows like that to see that life at the top can be hard, that it could be lonely and miserable at the top. But it is, says the teacher. So wise do we strive so hard to get there. Vanity, folly, says the teacher. Well, the teacher sits back in his chair, high up in his study, and he asks in chapter 6, verse 12, for who knows what is good for a pe person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? Now, verses 10 and 11, before these questions, they're two little riddles that really just speak about the weakness and limitations of humans, limited strength, limited language. 
It's to set up those questions in verse 12. The answer to them is no one. No one knows what is good for a person in life. No one can tell them what will happen under the sun after they're gone. No human can answer that question. I mean, the materialists, the philosophical materialists have tried, um, but they've come up with the same despair as the teacher in Ecclesiastes. Um, George Bernard Shaw, you might know him. He's, he's kind of like Dawkins, but a little bit earlier. Very intellectual. And when he reflected as an atheist on the world without God, this was his conclusion. He said, man's life is brief and powerless. On him and his race, the slow, sure doom falls pitiless and dark. Condemned today to lose his dearest and tomorrow to pass through the gates of darkness, it remains only to cherish. The lofty thoughts that ennoble his little day and to worship at the shrine, to worship at the shrine that his hands have built. Well, that's where the honest atheist goes. Only darkness is before us. Only tragedy is around us. And the only way that you can avoid, uh, avoid uh, thinking about that, avoid wallowing in that, is to stop thinking and just fill your day with activity, something that will numb your brain, to focus on what your hands have built and try to ignore everything else. That's a depressing picture too, isn't it? It's depressing, but it's what really sits behind the quarter-acre block. What really sits behind the investment portfolio, it's, what's, it's the reality behind the boat on the lawn and the endless scroll of influences, a denial of the inevitable. But the teacher isn't an atheist. He's not a materialist. So there are streaks of sunlight that pierce down through his melancholy. And although the implicit answer to these questions in verse 12 is no man, it's not no one. Because God does, does know what is good for a person in life. God knows and can tell what will happen after we are gone. There is a way that a laborer can find sleep that is sweet, as in chapter 5 verse 12. There is a way that we can find, like in chapter 5, verse 18, satisfaction in eating and drinking and our toil under the sun. There is a way that we can, like in chapter 6, verse 9, remain content with what our eyes see rather than what our appetite craves. And that is by realizing our money, our wealth, our possessions are meaningless in themselves but they are good. They are good because God has given them. The Bible, when, they, when, it, when it talks about materialism, when it talks about money, it doesn't say give up on them, get rid of them, sell them all, go and live in the desert somewhere. It doesn't say that. 1 Timothy 4 verse 4 says, for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. God gives good gifts, gifts that are meaningless in themselves, but good in that they come from him. Um, did you know that the Israel used to read the book of Ecclesiastes uh, every year at their harvest festival, a festival of booths, 
Um, Just as the harvest was about to come in, the fields were full and it was a time to thank God for all his provision over the last year and to pray for rain, a a good rainy season in in the season ahead. It was a festival that was all about the God who gives, the God who gave the fruit that was currently being enjoyed and the God who must give Uh, rain to ensure the next season is successful. Well, Israel looked at the harvest and said, here we are, another another year, another crop, another cycle, another cycle in a world that turns without end, meaningless, except that it comes to us from God. Their goods, their their harvest was was meant to turn them towards God. So what does it look like in the middle of our plenty, in the richness of our life, the blessings that we enjoy, the houses we live in, the cars that we drive, the phones we flick through, the food that we eat? It looks like recognising these things as blessings, temporary blessings that God has given to us for our enjoyment. But it looks like recognising that our contentment And our satisfaction, that the contentment and satisfactions of the ones that we we work uh, to support, that contentment and satisfaction isn't in those things. Now, it is a hard truth, but it it is good for our souls to hear that the pursuit of money is meaningless. It's good to hear that if you spend your whole life just trying to make it better for you and for your kids, then you'll have wasted it. Because consumerism so easily consumes us and distracts us from the God who gives. Rather than chasing dreams, we need to find contentment by living in the real world together the real world in which God gives good things to be enjoyed and the real world in which God will hold us to account for how we use them. Would you pray with me as we finish? Father, we praise you that all you have created is good, a blessing to us and wonderfully to be used for our enjoyment. Guard us from taking these gifts and making more of them than you intended. Protect us from that deception and grant us lives instead that use what you have given in the service of your son. And in his name we pray. Amen.